0: Just so you guys know, we are uh, midway through—about midway through—our Kingdom Come series through the Book of Acts. Uh, the Book of Acts reveals what it looks like for the Kingdom of God to come in and through the people of God. It's the story of the earliest iteration of the Christian Church. It's—it documents its meteoric rise and expansion throughout the first century. The stories of faith and courage and resilience found in Acts are are great encouragements to us as a church in the 21st century. And each week, uh, the critical question that we've been uh, asking and answering is, what would Ventura County look like if Jesus were king? What would Ventura County look like if Jesus were king? And more specifically, what should the church look like since Jesus is king? And This morning, we are going to address the question, what would our devotion look like if Jesus were king? In other words, what would our worship look like if Jesus were king? And to to address that question, we're going to be looking at an incredible story from Acts chapter 16, Uh, And I'm going to start this morning in verse 22. I'll be reading and teaching from the New International Version. Acts chapter 16, verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Church, this is God's holy word. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I'm reminded today that our theology exists for the purpose of doxology. That our understanding of you is meant for the purpose of worshiping you, both with our songs and with our lives. And so, Lord, I ask this morning that our study of this beautiful story would point us to a place of worship. And I pray. God, that you would allow each and every person here to see you in your rightful place today. I ask, God, that the words of my mouth this morning and the meditations of my heart would be edifying for the church and glorifying to your name, King Jesus. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's my daughter. <laughs> oh, man. Author George Beal... Uh, once said this. He said that we resemble what we revere, either for restoration or for ruin. We become like what we worship. Now, that was written by a theologian, but even great advertising campaigns understand this. Uh, Back in the 90s, when Michael Jordan was at the height of his career, Gatorade uh, released this very iconic advertisement uh, with a song that simply said, I want to be like Mike. The premise of the commercial was if you just drank this sugary drink, in some way you would be a little bit closer to being like Michael Jordan. Now, of course, this is totally preposterous, but the ad campaign totally worked. Or how about cologne commercials? Oh my gosh. cologne commercials, right? Just some ripped guy standing on top of a mountain with like just rock hard abs and just lightnings going off. And it's like, if you just spray this liquid all over yourself, then maybe you could have ripped abs too. <laughs> the new fragrance by Paco Rabat. If you've ever had a friend who has fallen in love, you know exactly what this looks like. Hypothetically, uh, let's say you have a friend or maybe if you're older, like a grandson Who's super into death metal. And then your friend or grandkid meets a girl. And then after a few months, you meet with them for coffee or something, and all of a sudden they're wearing like Native American print attire with like a wide-brim hat. And they're like, Yeah, I've just I've really been enjoying progressive folk music lately. (laughs) Or if you've ever been a fan of a sports team or an athlete, I'm sure many of us have. As your affections for the team begin to grow, as your affections for that athlete begin to grow, what do you do? You buy a jersey. You buy sneakers. Why? Because we resemble what we revere. We become like what we worship. Now what these examples reveal is that worship has tremendous transformational power. I love the way Tim Keller defines worship. He defines it this way. He says that worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone that engages your entire being. Whether you're a Christian or not, there is something that you worship. There is something in your life that you ascribe ultimate value to. Your career, your family, your relationships, a particular cause, a particular person, something has a claim on your affections. Something has your worship. And whatever has your worship will ultimately transform you into its image. Now when the Bible talks about worship, it speaks in both very broad and and very specific terms. On the one hand, the Bible reveals that all of life is meant to be worshipped. The entirety of our lives is meant to be worshipped to the Lord. Paul would write to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. To, he, he implored them to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, what we do, what we say, our financial decisions, our relationships, all of these things are meant to be carried out as an act of worship unto the Lord. Scripture reveals that worship is first and foremost a posture of the heart. But the Bible also reveals that within the context of our lives, there are very specific, acute moments of worshipful expression to the Lord. Throughout Scripture, these moments often take, the play in, uh, take place in the form of musical worship or the singing of hymns. That's why we devote half of our gathering time on Sunday to the practice of musical worship. It's in these specific moments that the presence of God meets the praise of His people in a very specific and unique way. And in our text this morning, we have before us such a moment And as we observe the transformational power of worship in our story, there are three things that I want us to look at. First, that worship begins as a way of life. Second, that worship becomes a witness to the world. And third, that worship births an awakening of the heart. The first thing I want us to see is that worship begins as a way of life. Now, how did Paul and Silas end up In prison in the first place. Well, earlier in the chapter, there was a slave woman who had been following Paul and Silas all over. She was demonized. And this particular demon had given her the ability to predict the future. It was a fortune-telling demon. And uh, this woman's masters saw this as a lucrative financial opportunity. And it was. It says uh, in the chapter that uh, she made a great deal of money fortune-telling for her owners. And so this fortune-telling woman is following Paul and Silas around for days, and then the scripture says Paul finally got so annoyed that he just turned to the Spirit, and he cast it out in Jesus' name, and the Spirit just left. But at the same time that Paul exercised the demon from the slave girl, he also exercised the revenue stream of her owners. And needless to say, they are not happy about this. So they seize Paul and Silas, they drag them before the authorities, they accuse them of practicing an illegal religion and throwing the city into chaos. The authorities oblige the slave owners, and Paul and Silas are beaten with rods and thrown into prison. Now consider for a moment the plight of Paul and Silas. These men were falsely accused, they were unjustly beaten, and they were wrongfully imprisoned. They had just freed this demon-possessed slave girl from being spiritually manipulated. And now, instead of her oppressors being brought to justice, her liberators are being punished. They're seized by the authorities, they're beaten within inches of their life. And then they had their feet placed in the stocks, which was a kind of torture device. Not only that, But this whole thing was actually uh, unlawful in the first place. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And if you were a Roman citizen, if you had citizenship, you were supposed to be protected. So there was no legal ground for their imprisonment. This was a grave injustice. Paul and Silas were suffering for doing good. And it would have been completely uh, justifiable for Paul and Silas to spend their time in prison Uh, trying to draw attention to the violation of their civil civil liberties. It would have been acceptable uh, for them to try to figure out a means of escape. It would have even been understandable for them to just sit and sulk in the misery of their misfortune. But they don't do any of that. Instead, it says that they worship God in the middle of a prison cell. In the middle of their suffering, in the middle of their injustice, Paul and Silas choose to give God praise. Luke, uh, the author of Acts, he uses this Greek word hymneo, which is where we get the word hymn, obviously. But this word actually specifically refers to something called the paschal hymns. These are a collection of psalms, uh, particularly Psalm 113, through Psalm 118 and Psalm 136. The Jews actually referred to these psalms as something called the Great Hallel, which means great praise. So here are maybe just a few of the things that Paul and Silas might have been singing in that prison cell. Perhaps it was the words of Psalm 113, Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Or maybe it was Psalm 115, not to us, Lord, but not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. Or maybe they were singing Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Paul and Silas were able to praise God from a prison cell because they had already developed a habit of delighting in him. Seeking him. Seeking his will. Seeking his kingdom. That was a mark of the early church. A few weeks ago, Tim preached on the idea of Christian practices. In Acts 2.42, it says that they had devoted themselves to fellowship, to the teaching of God's word, and to prayer, which would have certainly included worship. This was a habit that they had developed. Their very lives were an act of worship to God. And what we see in this prison cell, in this scene, is that their worship is not primarily a plea for deliverance, but rather a practice of devotion born out of a regular rhythm of prayer and praise. And so when the trials came, when the injustice came, when the accusations came, when the beatings came, they responded by worshiping by rehearsing truth about God, by recalling His promises, by remembering His goodness, not worshiping God to get out of their situation, but worshiping God in the middle of their situation, reminding themselves through prayer and through praise that even though their hands and feet were in chains, their, their hearts were completely free. Reminding themselves that even in the midst of violence and injustice and torture and pain, even in the lowest of the low places, God was with them. He had not abandoned them. Even in suffering, God still had a plan. He was still faithful. What this story shows us is that true worship is not controlled by our circumstances. The outcome doesn't define our adoration. Our affliction doesn't dictate our affection. Our praise isn't decided by our predicament and our situation doesn't determine our song. True worship is defined by the faithfulness and the character of God. God is both the source and the object of our praise. Anything less than that is not true worship. Because if our worship is somehow contingent upon a, a circumstance or an outcome, then we're actually not worshipers. We're manipulators. In essence, we're saying, God, I'm going to give you X, and I'm expecting Y in return. That's manipulation, not worship. That doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't believe or hope for a specific outcome, but it cannot be the basis for our worship. God alone is the basis for our worship. Paul and Silas understood this. They knew in their hearts that God was worthy of praise whether or not they got out of prison. Even if they stayed in the stocks, even if they drew their last breath in detainment, God was still worthy to be praised. He was still worthy of their worship. And so they worshiped. And what happened because of it? That's the second thing I want us to see, is that worship becomes a witness the world. Look at verse 25. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. It's so easy to miss that detail, but it is so important. The word that Luke uses for listen is this really complicated Greek word that I'm probably going to mispronounce. It's apakroamai, which means to listen intently. In other words, Paul and Silas had the ear of every prisoner in that jail. God had provided an audience to their praise. Now think about that for a second. What a peculiar sound this must have been. The other prisoners probably would have been accustomed to the groanings and the curses of those who were dragged forcibly into containment, perhaps the occasional uh, sea shanty or drinking song. But the singing of hymns? Melodies of praise, psalms of hope and freedom. This must have been completely and utterly shocking and fascinating to hear reverberating off of the cold prison walls. Why on earth would these men who had been beaten and tortured declare such things? Well, it would appear that by worshiping in their physical bondage, Paul and Silas became an instrument of spiritual freedom. Isn't it strange But at the end of the story, none of the prisoners leave. I find that so fascinating. Even after every prison door is opened, after every chain has come off, none of the prisoners escape. These were convicts. These were hardened criminals. And this was the opportunity of opportunities for a jailbreak. At the very least, a prison riot. But none of that happens. They all stay. Why is that? Was it uh, fear of the earthquake? Maybe. Did the Holy Spirit supernaturally pin each prisoner to the walls? That could have happened. The story doesn't give us an explicit answer, but there is a clue in the text that does suggest that something in that worship moment captured their attention. Something convinced them to stay. Perhaps they realized that in the presence of God, there was a greater freedom available to them. That within the prison walls, there was something or someone more valuable than their physical freedom. This guitar is a beautifully crafted instrument. It's been uh, created and crafted so wonderfully with complex caverns and curves that make it resonate in such a beautiful way. And the sound on this guitar is produced by strings. Those strings have been tensioned and tuned in order to resonate at a specific frequency. But not only that... The strings on this guitar are meant to resonate in conjunction with other strings to create a beautiful, complex sound. And when the church comes together in worship, whether it's in a sanctuary or a parking lot or a backyard or even a prison cell, God shows up in his love and in his grace and he strums his instrument. And we, his people... His beautiful strings filled with his beautiful spirit resonate with a beautiful sound of freedom that testifies of the life-changing, earth-shaking, chain-breaking power of the gospel. A few Sundays ago, uh, the worship team was practicing early in the morning. We show up at 6 a.m. to set up and rehearse. Praise God for people who love Jesus enough to show up at 6 a.m. and set up. Yes, praise God for that. Especially today. But uh, as we were practicing, I noticed a man uh, walking through the parking lot. I had never seen this man before. And that's not uncommon when we're practicing to have kind of people wander through the parking lot. Uh, Often it's people who are upset because we're making so much noise so early in the morning. And in the middle of a song, uh, I lock eyes with this guy. And then he makes a beeline like straight for me. And I'm thinking, oh no. I'm, 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 by the way, I'm like singing. We're in the middle of a song. He, he rushes up to the stage with this very intense look in his eye. And I'm just like bracing for the complaint. And then he looked at me. And he said, I was riding my bike. And I heard your voices. And it was beautiful. And I just felt something. I felt something rise up inside of me. It was like I felt freedom inside my soul. Friends, our worship bears witness to the power of the gospel. When we worship, the world listens. And that is especially important right now. In a season that has pushed people into their homes and has pushed the church outside of our comfortable four walls and into our community, the way that we worship matters what we proclaim matters. Why? Because we live in a city full of spiritual prisoners. Our friends, our neighbors, the people that we work with have been captured by fear, by hopelessness, by despair, by isolation. A recent poll I just read revealed that there are 41% of adults in America right now who have reported symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder. It's almost half of our adult population. Suicide rates are up. Divorce rates are up. Domestic abuse rates are rising. There are people all around us who are being held captive. People are groaning, both in their spirit and even with their mouths. Listen to the news. Look at your feed. People are frustrated. They're upset, and they're looking for a way out. And what they desperately need to see more than anything is a king who can set people free. Our world needs to see a king who can bring peace to their anxiety, who can silence their fears, who can revive their hope, who can befriend them in isolation, and who can deliver them from despair. And how can we show them this king? By worshiping him, both with our lives and with our songs, by testifying, just like Paul and Silas did, of a God who is stronger than our sufferings and more powerful than our pain. Our world desperately needs to hear the instrument of freedom that is the church full of worshipers. A world groaning with the pangs of the pandemic so desperately needs to hear the glorious praise of God's people. A world that is so desperately longing for freedom needs to hear the sound of a people who have been set free. And what happens when they hear it? What happens when our worship becomes a witness? And that's the third thing that I want us to see this morning is that worship births an awakening of the heart. As we conclude this story, I want to shift our perspective to that of the jailer. It says in verse 26 that as they were worshiping, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And then it says the jailer woke up. But this was so much more than a physical awakening. It would appear that God was using this moment to wake up the jailer's soul. In two ways. First, the jailer is awakened to the reality of his state. In verse 27, it goes on to say that when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. It's important to know that if you were a Roman jailer and a prisoner escaped from under your watch, you took their punishment. If even one of those prisoners had escaped, it meant almost certain death. So, in this moment, if you're the jailer, you're like, I'm done. There's no way out. There's nothing I can do. That's it. And just as he's about to take his life in the name of honor, he hears the voice of Paul shouting, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. In this moment, the jailer is awakened to the reality of his salvation. The very same man who he had brutally beaten and tortured and imprisoned is now assuring him that his life has been spared. Can you imagine that for a second? The prisoner declaring the freedom of the jailer? The abused declaring the salvation of the abuser? How can that be? The only logical answer is the gospel. You see, it would have been actually relatively easy for Paul and Silas to get out of prison, even before the earthquake happened. Right? Remember I said earlier that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They had protection. So in order to be let go, all they had to do was prove their Roman citizenship. They literally had a get-out-of-jail-free card. And if that didn't work, they certainly could have bailed as soon as the doors flung open and the chains fell off. And yet, they stayed. Why? Because Jesus stayed for them. Jesus, who though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus stayed for Paul and Silas, and Jesus stayed for you too. When your sin and your shame put stripes into the back of Jesus, when your pride spat upon his face and mocked him, when your guilt and shame nailed his hands and feet to the cross, Jesus stayed on that cross. He had the authority, and the ability to leave, but he stayed. He stayed and bled so that you can be forgiven. Jesus stayed and gave up his freedom so that you could be released from the prison of your brokenness. Jesus stayed and died so that your soul could be brought back to life. You see, the real miracle of this story was not the opening of the prison doors, but rather the opening of the jailer's heart. It wasn't the shaking of the walls, it was the shaking of the jailer's soul. It wasn't the the breaking of the bondage of chains, but the breaking of the bondage of sin. It was the awakening of the jailer's heart. I believe that in that moment, God was showing this jailer that if he could shake the walls of a prison, he could shake the foundations of his life. If he could fling open the prison doors of jail cells, he could fling open the prison doors around the jailer's heart. And If he could break the chains of prisoners, he could certainly break the chain of sin that held the jailer captive. Paul and Silas were motivated by a greater love. They knew what Jesus had done for them. They knew what Jesus had sacrificed for them. So they were willing to do for the jailer what Jesus Christ had done for them. What would it look like for the kingdom of God to come in Ventura County? I think it would look a lot, look like more of that, more of that kind of sacrifice. It would look like more people being moved and motivated by the gospel. It would look like people being so radically transformed by grace that they were compelled to do for others what Jesus Christ had done for them. And where does that begin? It begins in worship. Why? Because we become like the one that we worship. We resemble the one that we revere. Paul would later write to the church in Corinth that whenever we turn to the Lord, which is worship, the veil is taken away. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, that's worship, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is in worship when we behold the beauty of And the reality of the gospel that our hearts become transformed. That our lives become transformed to look more like Jesus. So this morning, let's allow our hearts to be transformed. Amen? Amen. Oh Lord, that you would transform us. Oh Lord, that you would make us more like you. We want to just take a moment this morning, God, to rejoice in the gospel, to rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, to rejoice in what you did for us, Lord. When our sin was too much, when our shame was too great, Lord, you stayed for us. We want to remember that today. We want to be changed by that. We want to be transformed by that reality today. So we ask, Lord, in the second set of worship that you would do it. As we declare your praise, as we sing of your great faithfulness, we ask that it would transform us to look a little bit more like you today, Lord, for your glory and for your kingdom. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to invite you to give Jesus the ultimate value in your life. Whatever the thing is that has a claim on the affections of your heart, whatever it is that has your worship, I promise you that at some point it will fail you. That relationship will fail you. Your career will fail you. Your health at some point will fail you. But Jesus will not fail you. Because Jesus didn't fail you when the fate of your soul was on the line, when the weight of your sin was on his shoulders, Jesus didn't fail. He stayed on the cross in your place. He died the death that you deserved. He paid the price. Nothing else in your life can make that claim. Believing in Jesus, what we call faith, is the simple act of turning toward him and saying, Lord, I want you to be the most valuable thing in my life. I want you to be the ultimate thing in my life. Nothing else matters more than you. If that's you today, there's a lovely team of people who are standing on both sides of this parking lot who would love to pray for you. Please, don't wait. Don't hesitate. Go see somebody. Get prayer. And if you are a Christian this morning, I want to invite you to give Jesus the ultimate value in your life. Because whether you've been a Christian for one day or 10,000 days, Jesus is worthy of being the ultimate thing in your life. And the means that we do that, the means by which we place Jesus as the ultimate thing is through worship. Right now we have an opportunity to put this into practice. We have an opportunity to remember the gospel, to sing of his wonderful sacrifice and declare his praise this morning. So if you've been set free by the power of the cross, then worship. If the chains of your sin and shame have been broken by his blood, then worship. If your heart has been awakened to his wonderful glory, then worship. Let's worship him right now, church.